Loading artist Audio inside Loading artist Audio inside Oh, it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast Yeah, yeah, yeah Listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair Or even take it with you like you ain't got no care Loading artists, audio inside. Loading artists, audio inside. So sit back and relax and grab your headphones too. Adjust your volume, it's Oddcast. Philip J. Mellon welcomes you. So sit back, oh yeah, it's Oddcast. Loading artists, audio inside. Loading artists, audio inside. I was thinking about this actually just the other day, again, which we all think about this, but just sort of the ridic- ridiculousness. You know, language uh, declared war on, on the visual arts uh, in the 20th century, and for a while it looked like language was winning. Um, and I'm, I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, I think that uh, the visual is uh, coming back strong uh, in a lot of ways. Um and because, you know, everybody sort of figured out that the reason painting was dead was because it was too full of words. Uh, right? You know, you put too many marbles in the fish tank and there's nowhere for the fish to live. <laughs> Welcome Stephen Wright to Oddcast. He starts off by talking about possible reactions to color, how they can be used, and why he gravitates towards a variety of grays. I don't find grays and blacks and all that to be depressing. I find it to be interesting, you know, um, to see what you can do with it. Because uh, color, you, I think we talked about this last time, or I've talked to this about with other people before, but I don't trust color fundamentally uh, because it operates on such an emotional level. Uh, it's not that I have anything against emotions. Emotions are great. But that seduction, it steals something. Uh, It can manipulate people in a way that um, uh, black and white and gray maybe doesn't. So, isn't that, I don't know. It's just, uh, I like bright colors, which is ironic. Like, you know, Matisse, for instance, is one of my favorite artists of all time. And look at the color there, right? Right. But, um I think maybe it just comes from um, maybe it just comes from the fact that I grew up in a small town and I know what ordinary people, so-called ordinary, I'm an ordinary person too, but uh, how they react to color. And yeah. um, you know, years ago I, I studied uh, or I did a lot of reading about um, like uh, uh, propaganda posters and things like that. Uh, to try to understand how they might work 
which is interesting because, you know, the, the Guggenheim is going to have that futurist exhibition coming up really soon. Um, but just thinking about the way that those designs and the color choices that were made in social realism posters and even even in uh, American posters during World War II and things like that or the First World War, like the choices that were made to influence the way people think and behave and stuff like that. And, you know, that applies to like retail even on TV or in the movies, you know, you have all those amped up colors and they're there for a reason because they um, manipulate you on a, an inf- in a fundamental way. They influence the way you think about things. And uh, like with real estate, they'll say, you know, to, to paint, the, if you want to sell your house, you paint the inside of the walls a certain color uh, because right. it makes it feel more open and warm and so, you know, it's like this little uh, primer uh, in a way that actually gets people to do something uh, or make decisions that aren't necessarily based on their best interests. They were like prompted to do it? Or, or... So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to me. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's just there's – but then again, I think – when I was younger, I worked almost exclusively just with black and white, with ink drawings and things like that. And so I just like black and white and grays. And um, but I, I plus I think they're a little more demanding. Like you have to spend a little bit more time. You don't immediately like black or white or gray. You know, uh, you kind of have to. Uh, you have to do some work. You, you, you don't – well, you, you can do some work, but if you if you just sort of are passive about it and it has a presence there, then um, it's interesting how it does its fair share uh, or it reveals itself. I, I, there's a complexity there that um, – you know, CAD, CAD red is CAD red. It changes a little bit according to the light. It amps up or it, it tones down a little bit. But it kind of behaves the same way no matter what. But a good complicated black or a gray sort of at times will absorb part of the spectrum. And then at times it will completely refuse it. And it actually sort of changes. Um, And I'm interested, you know, how it can go from sometimes a gray can look really yellow or it can look really green or it can look really blue or it can – it just kind of depends on its interaction with the light, and um, and and I like that because then that changes. Like you know, as the seasons go or wherever you are, the the image doesn't stay the same. You know what I mean? It's changing because its its environment is changing, but it's not changing. It's just <laughs> sort of re- like a mirror. It's just sort of reflecting it. Um, yeah. But it's just the way that it, that that happens. It's not consistent in a way. Um, so, but I like a lot of light. Shared next are his thoughts on the grid that shows up in his series called Paintings for Corporations. I, I, people think I love the grid, which I don't. There's there's a reason that you know the the corporations have a grid, and it's not because there's because it's a grid. It's not because it's a uh, I sort of chose this way of organizing the space uh, because it's simple or easy or whatever. Uh, although it is, it did when I when I sort of recognized 
at my work, um, I usually carry around, we have a daily like schedule and stuff that tells where everybody is and everything. It's just a standard little piece of paper and uh, from the copy machine. And so I'll just, I like to have one of those on me because it's useful for me to be able to know where everybody is and what times they're supposed to be coming and going and all this kind of thing. Plus, it's good to just have a little piece of scrap paper because sometimes I can I actually need to write notes or, um, you know, something like that. And so a few years ago, I was, you know, it's one of those things that happens gradually over time, but I always carried around that piece of paper and I always had it with me. And so even when I would be off from work, you know, my jacket would have these things in it and they were little things while I waited for my wife or whatever I could, while she was shopping, I could draw. And so I really started playing with this folded piece of paper yeah. and, um, and thinking about that relationship, you know, this, this little paper, it's not just a piece of paper, but it's a, uh, it symbolically and, and literally sort of shows how mine and other people's time is organized. You know, when you see something that's divided up geometrically or with a grid, you there's automatic uh, expectations about what that means. And that's a hard thing to get around um, because I, I sort of challenge the notion uh, the work doesn't challenge it because the work can't. The work is sort of at the mercy of the way that it's perceived yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the moment. And um, at some point, those sort of conceptual conceits of the time or whatever, they sort of uh, melt away or drift away or crumble, and then they're replaced by something else. And then the work has an opportunity to have a different sort of life to it. But – um, I am really interested in sort of working against that. Well, you know, like I, I, I say, uh, I, I doubled down on it. You know, I know that the grid is this redundant thing that people carry, that carries a lot of uh, baggage with it or a lot of preconceived notions. And it's been around for a really long time. You know, the uh, human mind is sort of designed to uh, recognize and appreciate and, and be infatuated with symmetry. Uh, it, it, you know, helps us to identify predators. Uh, but uh, so, you know, the folds, um, I'm sort of interrupting that flat plane and literally doing a really light embossed kind of relief. And I'm pushing uh, – a lot of times, you know, some of the paintings will have – that's where all the color is. They'll be on that little raised uh, part. But they're actually – they're raised, they're pushing out, but they're actually background because they'll be beneath, um, you know, the more dominant rectangles. And I like the tension that, that, that plays with that little, you know, those uh, four lines, you know, the plumb line and then uh, – yeah. And so it it pushes it pushes out and it recedes and um, then it becomes about sort of your desire to know you know uh, uh, putting a sort of a tease or a mystery out there and yet you're denied from going inside uh, sort of physically or with your senses you have to then go in with your imagination and. Um, then it becomes something 
you know, the visual triggers the imagination. Well, that's pretty fundamental. Um, it's just like, you know, if you use perspective in order to represent, uh, represent objects, you know, it's basically the same thing. You're using a visual technique in order to uh, um, partially trick the eye, but also just to sort of sim stimulate the mind, stimulate the imagination. And um, that's as anti-corporate as you could possibly be to stimulate the imagination and free thinking, isn't it? I mean, yeah. More on paintings for corporations. Yeah, I can talk a lot about mine. I mean, like um, specifically, like with the corporations, they're sort of a feint in a way because even though I'm perfectly sincere about them, and they have a life for me that's outside of all of the nonsense that can be um, glommed onto them. Yeah. Um, but really early, I was like, yeah, this is going to be. Uh, interesting because um, other artists will be, and I'm not trying to fool other people, but uh, or be deeply ironic. There is some irony there. There is some um, trickster-ish kind of things maybe going on with it, but that a lot comes just from the title and from the apparent, you know, ostensible style uh, of them. Um, but what's funny to me is that very sophisticated people with very good educations who make very good work and who I admire uh, will sometimes uh, send me messages or have commented, you know, on things. And I can tell that they understand it from uh, a completely different point of view than I do, or they only understand one side or aspect of it. They don't get it comprehensively, and um, and I'm okay with that uh, because it means that you know maybe they're in for surprises later on. Um, when I first started it, I tried to uh, make things uh, sort of dumb and boring in a way, yeah. um, and. And I thought, well, this is so sort of obvious that it's interesting. And um, let's see what other people think about it. Next, Stephen Wright shares the ideas behind the scale of his work. I'm not making pieces that are for the room for people to circulate, circulate around and have their picture taken in front of. I'm making things that are, you know, basically the size of your face, um, and you uh, can get close to it if you want to, or you can be far away. But it's for the individual, um, and it's yeah, it's meant to be personal and intimate. Um, yeah, say that. Yeah, it's not meant to be, you know, uh, a, a grandiose monument or something like that. Um, I'm not making a, a history painting. Uh, I'm not making, you know, I'm making something that's with a different intention that, that I want it to be, you know, I want it to have a, uh, a different kind of influence or impact than something that's room-sized. I mean, I know what a room-sized painting does, wall-sized painting. Uh, wow, right? They're great to look at. Um they're great to get lost in and everything like that. But 
I think you can get lost in something small, too. Stephen was nice enough to mail me two of his paintings for corporations, as well as a cloud painting. Here's a bit on what they mean to me and how I'm glad to have them. There's, there's a there's a history to these the mm-hmm. the paints and and um, I I I feel like I've gotten a couple of documents from you that mm-hmm. that are they could very well be poems or they could be secrets or mm-hmm. uh, you know roadmaps mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. I like the two that I sent because you know last last year I was thinking a lot a lot about these pairs of. Uh, so I thought, well, let's show them something else, and so I actually had sort of sketched in the sketchbook out this pairing of the one of the clouds with one of the corporations. And I thought, you know, these are really going to be, they're completely different. There's similarities. There's, there's some overlap between them in, in my interests, but visually they're different and um, sort of psychologically, conceptually, whatever they're different. Um, But they enter into a very interesting dialogue when they're put together. You know, one, uh, the cloud casts the corporation pictures in a different light. Um, it's this tableau, you know, of like a, um, and turns it into sort of a landscape or it becomes something else. They start to function as a unit differently than they do individually. Right. Uh, in a way, the cloud sort of, softens, you know, literally, no pun intended, the corporate pictures. Um, but then the corporate picture actually sort of um, draws out more of the sort of heavily um, philosophical, conceptual side of the, of the cloud paintings. So when Ian Williams um, asked me to, to – to send something for the pair show, I was like, oh. Now's the time. Now, what, I, I thought now's the time, but then again, I thought, well, let's see if I can do so. And so I made uh, a little small body of work of things that were pairs that were kind of, some of it was just stuff that I assembled to sort of look at for myself, and then some things I actually made specifically with that in, with that sort of theme in mind and exploring it. But the last week, uh, before I sent the stuff, I came back around to that uh, idea, and I had talked to you, and I'd sent those two to you, the, that particular pair of uh, the uh, the cloud and the corporate picture. Right. And so, um, and I thought, and you, you liked the one with the little bit of orange in the back, and I thought, oh, well, that's a good choice, Philip. Um, and uh, and then I thought, well, I'm going to send him a corporate picture that's not like the ones that I'm working on now, an older one, that would have been closer around the time. That corporation picture is actually a little bit older than the cloud picture, so it's kind of – they're sort of within the same year then. And um, I thought – well, you'll, I thought you would like that one too because of the uh, fact that, you know, that one corner is uh, open. You know, it's not, yeah. I'm not, I haven't sealed it off. I've sort of, you know, given you a peek behind the curtain, really, in a way, of what else going, of what's going on inside of these. I think that's another misconception: is people think they're very minimalist in intent. That I set out to make a sort of flat Greenbergian, you know, kind of painting. Um, but actually, a lot of my more imp- improvised kind of things are what's actually inside of that. 
and um, so and and it, it's that thing about the um, the intentional and the unintentional. You know, you can't get around the fact that geometry, in whatever form, is intentional. And I double down on that because I fold the paper. I make right. I make the paper make, um, and so uh, I'm emphasizing that in a way. And then I'm burying uh, or prohibiting you from getting a full view of what's actually inside, which is just fundamental, you know, to create a sort of atmosphere. Um, but it activates the – but I know you've noticed that some of them are all sort of flat surface. There's not – I don't get involved with the uh, um, the atmospherics or the – it'll be actually – I'm just working with a color or I've pushed everything out and it becomes a surface. But there's there's a big range in there of all kinds of things that I can do in what seems to be a very small preoccupation. You know, oh, well, he's just painting those rectangles again. Um, and it would be very easy to just sort of mathematically go, okay, well, I'm going to just variations on this theme. and um, But I actually approach it every time as something – different and new and it just sort of comes in that it's a, a a way of sort of um summing up at the end that's not always comfortable for me or interesting um and a lot of times i'll keep pieces that i don't like um i know most artists that i talk to you know they have to work something until they're satisfied with it you know but sometimes I'll get to a point where I just don't like one uh, one of the, the paintings, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a corporation or whatever. And I'll be like, I just really don't like this. I, but guess what? I'm gonna allow it. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, not, I'm gonna make the choice to let that thing live and um, and see what it does. Because I'm partially interested in, will I somehow see it eventually? And sometimes I don't at all. There are pieces that are in the stacks here that I I still don't like them. I hate them. Uh, but it's not all about me. You know what I yeah. mean? It's not all about my ego and my taste. Um, I could be wrong. Um, and uh, that's a big sort of uh, risk or jump to take, I think, for an artist to think, I could be wrong about my own work or about this particular piece. So why not just let it stand there on its own? Uh, it's at a place, it's got independence, but I don't like you. Um, but I'm still going to respect you enough to like, you know, let you play with the other little friends that I do love, my little favorites, my little pets. Yeah. Um, and because uh, you don't have to love every single painting that you make, you know. Uh, or every sculptor or, you know, whatever. And yeah. so I sort of like that having these sort of uh, little bastards that irritate me uh, <laughs> in with the ones that I really love um, because it creates this tension that other people, you know, if I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't know that, right? You you would think um, – you would deal with them as a as a as an over as a body of work as a you know, uh, and think that there was some continent some some continuity to them or something. And you'd be right, there is, 
but there are pieces that I just simply um, that are misfits that um, incidentally, because of the way that they look, uh, yeah. fit with the rest of it. And so they're allowed to be there, you know. More of my reactions to Stephen's two pieces that are in the pair group show at Proto Gallery in Hoboken, New Jersey. I thought it was um, like I, I I had this um, this daydream of of you know being being behind the bleachers over the fence in uh, in uh, middle school or high school and you know possibly at night maybe it was after a football game uh-huh, uh-huh. and you know doing what. what Kids that age aren't supposed to do. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Ignoring the rules, ignoring reality, ignoring the curfew, and uh, yeah, just indulging. Really, kind of almost acting in a way, like you know, you're just trying something out for the first time. Yeah. And uh, I like all that. That's 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 good because you're experiment. It's about experimentation on a certain level. I'm smoking. I'm being bad. I'm misbehaving. You know. But then there's the romance and the nostalgia of the, you know, the schoolyard. Uh, yeah, all I mean, all of that is, all of that's great. What a great thing to have associated with it. Yeah. And, and the idea of nature, like you haven't, like especially with the painting for corporations that I have, mm-hmm. it's it's so much about nature. And, mm-hmm. and they're, they're, like you were saying about um, the young lady you met in, in – mm-hmm. Gallery, how said that about the darks. Mm-hmm. You know, even even with the the two that are a pair, they're they're not dark. I mean, they're not black. How could they be black if they were black? You wouldn't see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about how how like pleasant um, activities or pleasant memories. Like, and I had said something about if you were swimming at night mm-hmm. in the lake. Mm-hmm. That's to me what some of them are about, mm-hmm. and not darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're not about geometry. They're not minimalist. They're not. Uh, they're not the things they at first appear to be. And I think it takes a while for people to get past that first impression. Um, but I like it that they do when they do. You know. I mean, that's good. You know, the the one that you have, it has a lot of the browns and the olive greens, and it has a lot of earth tones and things like that in it. And But then again, the cloud picture, you know, uh, it has some of that t- as well. That gray is, uh, if I remember correctly, it's kind of a warm gray. It's not a and, – and plus it has the orange underneath it in, in places – so it's almost like it's it's painted over fire. Or it's painted. You may. I mean, you could get into all kinds of metaphorical things, right? Um, but I want that. I like that. That you know, what appears to be simple at first uh, actually has layers of sophistication that only reveal themselves maybe over time or uh, through having a relationship or interaction with it. And it's small. I'm not trying to like force you to have the relationship you know what i mean it's like hey i'm here you know um it's not uh insisting on your it doesn't insist on your attention although i like i think i'm kind of pretty good about the scale of things 
and making it sort of feel uh, anchored. You know, it, it's solid. The corporations are pretty – they're not going to fall apart. The clouds are not going to – the clouds don't move, which I think is yeah. part of what's interesting about them too is that this cloud is fixed. It's not going – but it's not Yeah. because it brings uh, everybody's idea of what a cloud is to it, you know. It, it requires some viewer participation, you know, yeah. for it to be something other than just um, a sort of flat, inert um, painting. It reminds me of something someone would uh, – the, the symbol of like a, a, a stone or a shell that someone would pick up from the beach. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of keep it. They, li- they like it. And they like to touch it, and they keep it on the shelf. And, Yeah. I like that. That's really cool. It just came to me. And it's funny, the more I, – I think every image mm-hmm. sort of should demand and, and should deserve the kind of attention that's, that's just right for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, otherwise, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many things. there's always a new story to tell. A little bit on art and life. And uh, it's a confined infinity, which is really what all objects of art and even life is uh, inside of these uh, the parameters of life and death. Uh, there are all kinds of things which can happen, um, some of which are more possible than others. Um, but even during the course of the day, you know, um, because there's so many things that are larger and beyond our control, um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a, it's it's stimulating to be alive, um, and uh, and all that that brings. Right. I mean, I'm sure you, like everybody else, you notice things um, on a daily basis, uh, even though you may not know that you notice them uh, that are that you didn't know before or hadn't noticed before. And, uh, oh, my, this is also uh, – uh, it's so zen, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> that goes back to my youthful my youthful studies. But uh, it is. Uh, I mean, life is a, a philosophical uh, question mark. And um, I get to play with it with paint in a way, play around with yeah, paint. Yeah, because there's the bookends, you know, you're born, you die, and in between. Uh, but then you're also part of something larger than that, you know, the dialogue of human beings across the across time, across mortality. We, yeah. we have defied that with uh, writing and with uh, uh, language and with uh, art and with sculpture and architecture and technology and all these sort of things. Um, we collectively uh, have this built these uh, uh, machines in a way time machines in a way but that still communicate directly you know, you can look at uh, 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 Rembrandt's portrait self-portraits and I mean there's still an immediacy uh, there uh, because and it's that shared human element the the humanity of it you know, which is what you know you binds us all together and that's so interesting to be able to have these conversations well you know i talked about this the last time we talked about um you know the 
the cave paintings, Lescaux, et cetera, like that. Um, <laughs> that's still relevant to who we are and will always be. Um, and, you know, we make things now um, that are relevant to who we have been and who we will be in the future um, because there is this continuity uh, in human beings. And this uh, – it's, uh, it's a privilege really, isn't it, to be – and a pleasure to be uh, some small part of it or at least just be interested in it and attempt to participate in it. Yeah. Um, I'm happy with even that. This has been Oddcast. Thank you from me, your host, Philip J. Mellon. Keep the dialogue going. <laughs>